Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. challenging the teaching of younger creationism and intelligent design in schools. From 1987 to 2013, Eugenie served as the executive director of the National Science Center for Science Education. They are a nonprofit organization uh, providing information and resources to schools, parents, concerned citizens, working to keep evolution and climate science in public school science education. She holds a PhD in biological anthropology from the University of Missouri. Her research has been in medical anthropology and skeletal biology. Uh, Eugenie is a nationally recognized as opponent of the separation of church and state and serves as on the National Advisory Council of Americans for the Separation of Church and State. She has worked uh, nationwide to communicate the scientific method to the general public and improve how science as a way of knowing is taught in schools. I uh, first uh, became aware of Eugene when I learned about the Kitzmiller uh, Dover, Pennsylvania school board case. This was a modern day Scopes monkey trial where the high school curriculum had actually been changed to include the teaching of intelligent design alongside uh, evolution. Eugene was part of the team that helped win that case. Eugene. Thank you. Lovely to be back in Canada. Thank you for inviting me to um, be part of the evening. And I'm looking forward to it. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful valley in British Columbia. In this valley, there was an attractive town called Abbotsford. This small town school board had a policy where both evolution and something called creation science were taught. Some members of the community protested, but to no avail. The school board was firm that its policy was pedagogically sound and furthermore supported by its citizens. Research revealed that creation science materials, religious in nature, were being used in the classroom. This was bad science, but also religious advocacy in a public school. There was, however, considerable criticism of the school board's <laughs> policy, and things came to a head after a protracted two-year struggle. Arch uh, Charbonneau, British Columbia Museum, Minister of Education, came down hard on the Abbotsford District, informing them in no uncertain terms that the theories of adaptation and evolution must be taught as part of the biology level course offered in schools. Even more importantly, he directed that no religious dogma or belief may be taught under the guise of science nor in any other part of the at one point, he even threatened to dissolve the school board and appoint replacements. How many of you remember this Abbotsford case? A few, so I'm glad I'm talking about this, because a lot of you don't know about this. 
1996 ministerial guidelines for the teaching of biology, a several paragraph section, course requirements respecting food, spelled out clearly that creation science had no place in the science curriculum and that students in British Columbia, including Abbotsford, were to be taught standard science. In other words, evolution. But how did Abbotsford get into this situation? And what is this thing called creation science? And where did it come from? And why the fuss about evolution among all aspects of the biology curriculum? Now, you all get to go blind if you try to do this, okay? Because this is a really fuzzy PDF. And this is just a prop, okay? And the reason that those red bars refer to how long this statement is from page one to page two, but please don't try to read that because your eyes are going to go into major eye strain if you try to. Um, so don't even try. <clears throat> it certainly is not news that the United States has a quite low frequency of acceptance of evolution. These data are from 2006, but frankly, they haven't changed very much in the, in the time period. And it's a, it's a good thing. During this survey, which was conducted by uh, John Miller, uh, my contribution was considerably minor to test the truth, he asked the question, human evolved from earlier forms of animals, true or false? And I've blown up that diagram there, which does show uh, countries, Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, France, etc. Um, the blue is agree, the yellow is not sure, the red is disagree. And where is the fine nation of the United States of America? We beat Turkey. You were first. We're number two. We're number two from the bottom. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, Canadian polling organization Angus Reid Public Opinion, these data are from 2010. Uh, Great Britain, uh, 80, there we go. 68% agreed that humans evolved, and only 16% attested to the special creation of humans about 10,000 years ago, which is the essence of young Earth creationism. But then again, you'd expect the British to be keen on evolution because Darwin's their guy, right? <coughs> In Canada, you have almost as high a percentage accepting evolution, um, uh, and a somewhat higher but still small 25% supporting young Earth creationism. Uh, in the United States, only 35% accepted evolution and a whopping 47% believing in younger creationism. U.S. scientists, however, contrast strongly with the general public in their acceptance of evolution. So clearly there's considerable disjoint between the views of scientists in <coughs> their acceptance of evolution and those of the general public in my country. Well, this isn't new. Uh, the United States has been behind the curve regarding the acceptance of evolution, even as far back as the Scopes trial. And frankly, I'd like to see more headlines like this one. Uh, so let's start at the beginning with the Scopes trial of 1925. And we might well ask the question, why was there so much opposition to evolution in the early part of the 20th century? Ronald Numbers, the historian, notes that there was a relatively high acceptance of evolution in the educated public in the United States at the end of the 19th century and during the early part of the 20th century. Textbooks routinely included evolution by the turn of the century, and it was well accepted in the scientific community as well. Part of this was because many of the 19th century scientists who embraced evolution were themselves clergymen or at least churchgoers. Many of them were theistic evolutionists believing that God created through evolution, which is standard Christian theology. 
There was religious opposition to evolution in the early 1900s, but it wasn't predominant as it became a few decades later. Three things happened that changed this more or less accepting of evolution uh, environment, if you will, or atmosphere to one that was uh, largely hostile to it. First, with the urbanization that was taking place all over North America in the turn of the century, more children were going to secondary schools. Instead of quitting school at eighth grade to go work on the farms, um, high schools were being formed, and with more children, with more families moving to the, to the cities, more kids were going to high school, which meant more kids were being exposed to these textbooks that included evolution. So people who might not have wanted their kids to learn evolution uh, were certainly put on guard because it was part of the curriculum back there. <coughs> second, in the second decade of the 20th century, a new, really quite American form of Protestant Christian theology evolved. Uh, a series of 12 pamphlets called the 12 Fundamentals formed the basis of a new Protestant religion called fundamentalism. Uh, this is not traditional Christian theology. This is a relatively new movement uh, in the, in the uh, centuries-long history of Christianity. Uh, in North America, it tends to be viewed as sort of traditional, but, but it isn't really. It's really quite new. It was a result of a, um, of a number of, of social factors. But the new fundamentalist uh, tenets stress the inerrancy of the Bible, which is not the same thing as literal interpretation of the Bible. But it didn't take very long before the idea that the Bible was inerrant, in other words, that it was, it was true as a theological document, to sort of slide over into literalism as well. So the idea grew up, which really was certainly not part of Catholicism or even mainstream uh, Protestantism, that the uh, stories in Genesis, Genesis should be taken as historical truth, 6.4 hour days, special creation, and so forth. Now, Evolution is not compatible with the literal interpretation of the Bible. It is compatible with many uh, uh, forms of Christianity, but not with biblical literature. If one believes for religious reasons that everything uh, came into existence specially created by God only a few thousand years ago over a short period of time, this is just simply incompatible with evolution. And the rise of fundamentalism, therefore, increased the proportion of Christians who were biblical literalists and thus increased the percentage of Christians who had a conflict with evolution. But there were other reasons why evolution came to be viewed negatively uh, in the first couple of decades of the 20th century as well. A third reason is that many socially progressive thinkers associated evolution, particularly the mechanism of natural selection, Darwin's great mechanism for how evolution, the driving engine of evolution, with social governments. Sweatshops, child labor, exploitation of the worker, all of these were justified by late affair capitalists as such as Andrew Carnegie as being natural. And people like Carnegie consciously linked such practices to natural selection. Whatever beneficial philanthropy uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, practiced, um, he created the public library system and a number of other things actually quite generous with as well. Nonetheless, he held ideas that were exploitative of workers, and he explicitly based his views on natural selection. Um, what Huxley would have called a naturalistic fallacy, but nonetheless. 
So the idea of, of social Darwinism is associated with the idea of evolution, and social Darwinism is a social evil. Uh, nobody accepts today that children should be working in mines, uh, or that um, workers should, uh, the, the, day, the, the length of the day of the worker should be as long as the boss wants it to be. We don't accept those kinds of, of, uh, of uh, practices. And part of this philosophical revulsion against social Darwinism included the reaction of the civilized world to the appalling devastation and carnage of World War I. The Great War. Uh, we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War One. Has anybody besides me been thinking a lot about the Archduke uh, Ferdinand? Uh, <laughs> looking at the Crimea. Oh, never mind. Uh, but um, <laughs> um, World War One seems to be the, the textbook example of civilization gone wrong. The Germans had been considered the height of civilization in Europe. Uh, they had um, incredible culture, incredible technology. They were uh, leaders of thought, science, industrialism, etc. Yet they were accused, of, not always accurately, but sometimes accurately, of the most appalling atrocities. Vernon Kellogg wrote a book called Headquarters Nights, some of you might have heard about in 1917. And this uh, was uh, a fantasy, but it purported to be reports of him hanging out with the uh, German high command. And he quoted them, conversations never took place, near as anyone can tell, but he quoted them as, uh, as saying that, oh, well, yes, it is German's destiny, and uh, Germany's destiny to rule, and uh, this is all very Darwinian, so the association of Darwin and Hitler, sorry, this is Darwin, uh, Germans in World War One. Uh, natural selection and German militarism was uh, introduced into the American public mind and the public mind of many other nations as well. Nature red in tooth and claw, this was the concern. So clearly, if that was your understanding of evolution, if your understanding of evolution and natural selection was social Darwinism, you don't want your kids learning this in school. <coughs> So you had Christian conservatives who were objecting to the teaching of evolution in schools because it, um, it violated their religious precepts. They were biblical literalists, and, and indeed, evolution is not compatible with a literal interpretation of the Bible. But then you also had social progressives who were against the teaching of evolution as well because of the association of evolution with social Darwinism. William Jennings Bryan was one of the leaders of the anti-evolution campaign. And you know, he was a really interesting guy. History has given him a bad rap. Uh, he really was not nearly as religiously conservative as he is often presented. Um, he accepted, for example, that the Earth was old. During the Pope's trial, um, many of you, I'm getting ahead of myself, many of you already know that he um, participated in the trial of John Scopes in Tennessee. During the Pope's trial, he shocked his supporters by agreeing that, oh, of course, the, the world is uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of that wasn't a big issue to him. He was certainly not a young person. Um, he believed that God created humans specially, but he was pretty agnostic. Maybe the rest of uh, living things, maybe all the other plants and animals could have evolved. It wasn't a big deal. So he's gotten a, a kind of a bad rap. Brian was a really interesting guy. Uh, my husband and I come from uh, Berkeley, California. Um, Brian could probably have gotten elected in any election in Berkeley in the, in the last 15 years. 
Um, this was a guy who was very much promoting a progressive agenda. He was for uh, votes for women. Remember, this was the uh, 1920s. Women did not have the vote in, in uh, the United States. He was uh, for worker rights. He, uh, uh, he was one of the people who established the idea of an eight-hour workday. Who'd have thought uh, that working eight hours a day was enough? and that workers have the right to work a decent number of hours and not just work a 10 or 12 hour days with the women of the employer. There was a lot of child labor. He was uh, an opponent of child labor. He was really a pretty neat guy in a lot of ways. But unfortunately, we tend to associate William Jennings Bryan with Matthew Harrison Brady, the character in the Broadway play and movie Inherit the Wind. Now, Inherit the Wind is a great movie. There's Spencer Tracy, French of Frederick March, who looks a whole lot like William Jennings Bryan, by the way. It's very interesting the way they have it made up there. Um, and it's a great movie. It's a wonderful play. A lot of times, uh, certainly in the United, United States, a lot of times it's performed in high school and for the junior season play. Um, and it's a very good play, but the actual Scopes trial itself was so much more exciting, so much more engaging than even a dramatization like Gone with the Wind. Excuse me. <laughs> that's, that's another drama to do. Inherit the Wind. Inherit the Wind, by the way, comes from Proverbs 11:29. He that troubleth his own house shall inherit the wind. The Scopes trial was an iconic American historical event. Uh, William Jennings Bryan squared off against another famous American lawyer, Clarence Darrow. Darrow, uh, sorry, Bryan was the spokesperson for fundamentalist Christianity. Darrow was a free thinker, which got him into a lot of trouble, actually. The two had been political allies in the uh, decades earlier, in the uh, early part of the century. Um, Darrow had supported uh, Jennings, Bryan's uh, run for the presidency and had supported his progressive uh, legislation. But they parted ways later in life largely because of um, Darrell Bray being a free thinker and uh, William Jennings Bryan uh, embracing this very conservative form of Christianity. The Scopes trial concerned the banning of evolution, but also was about the rights of workers, like teachers. The Butler Act was passed by the Tennessee Assembly in 1925, and it banned the teaching of human evolution. The American Civil Liberties Un Union, which was a very small organization in New York, um, which concerned itself with freedom of speech, but also the rights of workers, decided that the Butler Act was an assault on the freedom of speech of teachers. Teachers should be able to teach evolution if they wanted to. The ACLU advertised that it would defend any teacher who would be willing to be a plaintiff in a lawsuit to challenge the law. And these advertisements were published in Tennessee newspapers all over the state. Dayton, Tennessee, is a very small and quite lovely little town nestled on a hill between a couple of rivers. They decided that they were going to put Dayton on the map uh, by staging a trial of the Butler Act in their town. Now, a couple of the uh, town leaders thought that the Butler Act was kind of dopey and, you know, were perfectly good reasons to challenge the act, but the main reason why the city fathers in Dayton wanted to challenge the uh, Butler Act anti-evolution law is because they thought it would bring business to town. This was a you know, this was a, a boostery event for the community. Well, so who are you going to get to be the plaintiff? The regular biology teacher was an old guy, and he was getting ready to retire, and he just didn't want to have anything to do with this. And so as they were plotting to you know, develop this big campaign to bring uh, 
to bring the ACLU in uh, to defend the, uh, to attack the Butler action, we say. Um, they remembered that there was a young coach uh, who had substituted for the biology teacher at some point in the year, and, and that's probably good enough. So they called the young John Stolten <laughs> and said, you want to be a plaintiff? And 25-year-old kid, he, he, he actually just wanted to get back to his tennis game mostly. He was in the middle of summer. Yeah, sure, whatever. And so John Scope became the plaintiff for the uh, ACLU case testing the Butler Act. The ACLU was informed that a plaintiff was available and preparations commenced. Now, William Jennings Bryan hadn't encouraged the Butler Act or any other um, of the legislation that was starting to kind of float around uh, in 1925 to ban the teaching of evolution. Uh, but once he heard that there was going to be a trial in Dayton, Tennessee, uh, he stepped up to the plate. He was never shy about publicity. Neither of these guys were shy about publicity, Darrell or Ryan. They were both more than happy to be on the front page of the newspapers. And the prosecution thought this was a great idea. Uh, having a great commoner uh, on their side would certainly give their, uh, their side a great deal more help. Brian was incredibly popular among uh, a large, large portion of the uh, country, particular, particularly among religious conservatives. And uh, the town uh, fathers were perfectly happy too because bringing the great commoner in to um, be part of the prosecution side would certainly swell the uh, um, uh, numbers of people who would come in for the, for the trial. Remember, this is a publicity stunt for the town of fathers and babies. Well, once Brian was involved, Darrell also insisted on being part of the defense team. Uh, and quite frankly, the ACLU uh, lawyers were not very happy with this because uh, you know, they, they really wanted the focus to be on the worker rights. Unfortunately, with uh, William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrell, the focus was going to be on these two icons of, of, uh, America, of the American legal system. And frankly, the ACLU already had an amazingly good Team. People like uh, Dudley Fields Malone and John Neal were highly respected lawyers. And if you go back and read uh, the accounts of the Scopes trial, it is Dudley Fields Malone and Neal who really brought the audience to their feet with the strength of their rhetoric and the, the powerful speeches that they gave. Darrell, not so much. Darrell gets all the credit because of the wonderful scene that is portrayed in Hair of the Wind as opposed to God of the Wind. Um, where he puts William Jennings Bryan on the stand and cross-examines him about the Bible. That's kind of the iconic scene from um, Inherit the Wind, and it was very memorable, certainly, in the Scopes trial. But uh, there's a very good book about the Scopes trial that I would recommend to anybody by Edward Larson called um, Summer of the Gods. And it, it, it's a very gripping reading. It was a very exciting time. And the book reflects the excitement of the community and some of the greatest political speeches ever. Well, just as the civic boosters hoped, Dayton became the center of attention for the month of the trial. People flocked to town to see the trial. There was a circus-like atmosphere. Uh, Dayton definitely was put on the map. You know, they, they used the expression about the O.J. Simpson trial as the trial of the century. No, the trial of the century was the trial of John Scopes in 1925. This was the very first trial anywhere in North America that was broadcast on this newfangled thing called radio, uh, coast to coast, 
So people literally all over the country were able to listen to the trial in real time. This was incredibly exciting. And millions of people listened to this trial. In terms of the percentage of Americans that were involved in listening to this uh, uh, court of events, it, it swamped anything before or since. Newspapers from all over the country sent reporters who dispatched uh, stories by telephone to their editors. Modern communication. Ryan made the following three arguments as part of his position in why John T. Scope should be convicted for violating the Butler Act and why it was also trial of the Butler Act too, of course, why this was uh, an important act of its sense. One is that evolution is unsupported science. The science of evolution was weak. Scientists formally were convinced by evolution, but they were giving up on it rather, rather rapidly. Evolution was on its last legs. He also made the argument that evolution was incompatible with Christian faith. That you had to choose. You had to choose between your Christian religion or evolution. Now, interestingly enough, uh, William Jennings Bryan's own views weren't quite that solid, but this is certainly the, the position that he argued in the trial. And finally, that citizens rather than experts should determine the curriculum. Very interesting idea. I, and one which certainly in the United States, with its, its great enthusiasm for local control of education, you still find regularly today. In fact, uh, my former organization, I retired from the National Center for Science Education, but I still hang out with a lot of my old friends there. Um, <laughs> NCSC has spent a rather disproportionate amount of time in the state of Texas over the last <laughs> 10 years or so, because the state of Texas does have this very at least the decision makers, um, many of them on the Board of Education, have a very strong uh, conviction that um, citizens, rather than experts, should be making the decisions about what is to be taught. And if they don't want evolution taught or they want something else taught, um, like intelligent design, or you know, they should be able to do that. And it's, it's, it's an interesting tension. But these were the three arguments that William Jennings Bryan presented in these books trials. At the National Center for Science Education, for many, many years, we have referred to the pillars of creationism. These are the arguments that creationists make to support their position. And pretty much every book or every film strip or letter to the editor or debate that you, podcast that you see online or whatever, um, all of these uh, contentions can pretty much be, be uh, groups into one of these three. The first pillar of evolution is that evolution is weak science. Evolution is a theory of crisis. Evolution is being given up on by scientists. This will come as a surprise to scientists. Uh, but this is not the contention, and I can show you lots and lots and lots of examples um, from as recently as yesterday. Creationists constantly make this point, that evolution is on its last legs. They also make the point that evolution and religion are incompatible, that you have to choose. Now, of course, if your version of Christianity is special creation and biblical literalism, yep, that is not compatible with evolution. If your views are more mainstream Christianity, then evolution is compatible. And the third point is kind of related to uh, Brian's position. This is the fairness argument that, well, if you're teaching 
evolution, it's only fair to teach creationism along with it's a good critical thinking exercise to give the students both views and let them debate and decide. Uh, it's a way of getting creationist views into the classroom um, under the guise of an American cultural tradition, really a North American cultural tradition, that we all hold to very strongly. We like free speech, we like freedom of expression. Um, there are many, many reasons why this fails as an argument within science. We don't actually vote on how the world works. We, in science, we have to figure out how the world works and test our explanations. And after a long period of, of review among specialists, we conclude that yes, tentatively we'll accept this explanation as opposed to that one, and so forth. We don't, you know, it's, it's not a matter of fairness. Um, the, these fairness is an extremely important cultural value, but it's really irrelevant to science in, in a very the mainstream medium through media, through people like H.L. Mencken, pokes fun at the traditional views of the Tennesseans. H.L. Um, Mencken is, uh, is famous for his acid tongue. If you read any of his dispatches, he, they're, they're quite funny, but they're also very mean. He referred to the bourgeoisie of uh, Tennessee. <laughs> um, Europeans collectively raise their eyebrows. Um, but the important thing to remember is even though in uh, much of popular culture, in much of educated society, the newspapers, the uh, uh, editorials, and so forth, um, this, the Butler Act was viewed as this very backward kind of thing. You know, how could you possibly take this seriously? Scopes lost. Scopes lost and anti-evolution laws stayed on the books. Uh, the Scopes trial is considered by some to be this uh, triumph of modernity, but Scopes lost. And actually what happened subsequent to 1925 is that textbooks which used to include evolution within their pages slowly started taking the evolution out. So that according to scholars of this issue, by about 1930 you would be hard pressed to find evolution in any uh, high school biology textbook. Even though, you know, uh, Mencken and all the rest of them poked fun at the backward views of fundamentalism and so forth, nonetheless, the net effect of the scope trial, the net effect after the scope trial, was much less evolution being taught in school than at the time beforehand. An interesting little historical uh, note there. In fact, the specific book that John Scopes taught from, Hunter's Civic Biology, which included evolution. Most books did after the turn of the century. After the Scopes trial, evolution disappeared from this as well as other high school textbooks. Evolution didn't return to the high school biology curriculum until the science education reforms of the Sputnik era. At this time, the National Science Foundation in the United States put money into the development of high school science textbooks that were really competently written for a change, not just written by textbook publishers, but written by scientists and master teachers. These books then as presented as models for what textbooks should be like in biology, chemistry, earth science, and physics. These became cloned by textbook publishers who started writing books like them, and evolution came back into the curriculum. Not because of any legal decisions, but because of just this movement of we have to improve science education because the Russians beat us in the space. You all recognize that, Nikki? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so evolution started coming back into the textbooks 
by the mid-1960s. Now, the state of Arkansas still had one of these anti-evolution laws on its books, and just as a matter of sort of tidying things up, but also to make it um, you know, easier for teachers. The teacher has a book, the book has evolution, but looking over your shoulder, you see there's a law on the state statutes that uh, um, will throw you in jail if you teach from this book. You know, so let's just get rid of the silly law. And the Arkansas Education Association brought a suit in the um, state court uh, to get rid of what they thought would be just a little housekeeping issue. We'll just get rid of the silly law. It's not really being applied anyway, and then the teachers can feel confident to teach it. A 25-year-old teacher named Susan Epperson was chosen to be the plaintiff. Now, Epperson was a perfect choice for this case. She was a young and attractive and very personable biology teacher. Her father was a biology teacher and a pillar of the community. She had married a uh, young man who was in the Air Force at the Air Force Academy there in Colorado Springs. And um, whatever happened with this case, she was going to be leaving the state at the end of the year because she was going to be posted. So she was the perfect plaintiff. Um, she wasn't going to get any fallout from this case, should there be. And much to everybody's surprise, um, the case uh, actually failed at the state level. Everybody was astonished. Well, this is just, this is a silly old 1920s law. Why are we still keeping it on? The courts upheld it. So it was appealed. Thank goodness it was appealed. The appeal went all the way to the National Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court had, uh, ruled against it. Now, to understand why, a little quick civic solution, a lesson, so to speak, uh, in the Constitution of the United States. In the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment has two clauses. One is the Establishment Clause, which states that no public entity can establish religion. You cannot establish a religion or religion in general over non-religion. The second part of the uh, First Amendment, religion section, is the Free Exercise Clause which means that everyone has a right to practice the religion that they wish, or no religion at all. You can kind of see why First Amendment law is really interesting to lawyers, because if you look at the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, they can be in contradiction. One person's Establishment issue can very easily be another person's Free Exercise issue. And so First Amendment law is quite complicated and, and very, very interesting. Maybe my third career on the one. So because of the Establishment Clause, the case that eventually went to the Supreme Court regarding the Arkansas decision, Epperson versus Arkansas, was decided that anti-evolution laws like the Butler Act and the Arkansas law were struck down because they favored one religion over others, and they violated the Establishment Clause. Remember that the views of the people who promoted these anti-evolution laws were sectarian Christian views. They were of one group of Christians, not of Christians in general. They were promoting the view of biblical literalist Christians, and so they clearly failed the establishment clause. Now, this was 1968. By now, evolution was in most of the textbooks. Uh, and this was, of course, of great concern to conservative Christians who did not like their children being exposed to ideas that they thought were going to be very uh, negative for their moral development and so forth. Um, 
Conservative Christians believe in special creation, not evolution. And special creationism is a particular theological view about how God creates. And special creation, God creates very specifically um, everything in its present form. So if we look at the moon and we look at the stars and we look at uh, uh, fir trees and cedar trees and warthogs and people and every, every plant and animal and all other aspects of the universe, plants and stars and everything, God created them in their present form. The most um, uh, significant uh, aspect in terms of evolution is that the plants and animal kinds that were created, remember in Genesis it says that God created all creatures according to their kind. The kinds of creatures that are created um, have a limited amount of genetic variation, so you can get evolution within the kinds. You can get evolution within the cat kind, so you can get pumas and tigers and uh, lions and cheetahs and like that. Uh, there might have been an individually created cat kind, but within the cat kind you could have evolution. But cats and dogs don't share a common ancestor. That's the big difference between special creation and evolution. Um, the most common form of special creation is um, young earth special creation, in which all this takes place is generally one period of time, six 24-hour days. But there are other kinds of special creation as well. There's a um, form of creationism called progressive creationism, in which uh, the universe and the planet Earth are viewed as being billions of years old. The, um, if you look at the fossil record, you find uh, simple, single-celled organisms for a very, very long period of time. And then you have simple multicellular organisms and more complex multicellular organisms. Um, and then you have a chain rate explosion for all the different kinds of plants and vertebrates. And then eventually you get into lions and tigers and bears and lions. And um, to progressive creationists, that's real. I mean, these are creatures that lived at different times, but they are all special creations. When uh, evolutionary biologists look at the distribution of uh, plants and animals through the geological column, uh, we see an evolutionary progression where uh, forms more recently are descended from forms that lived longer ago in time. Special creationists view those as separate creations. So it's still a special creation point of view, even though it is a more moderate point of view than that of, say, young earth creationists or data age creationists. The most important element for special creation, though, is that God creates things in their present form, essentially their present form. So there can be no evolution with this point of view. Now, the scientific concept of evolution uh, contrasts very stunningly with this point of view. Uh, evolution views the universe as coming about through time, as having a history. If you were able to go back into the past, you would find a different universe than what you see today. If you were able to go into the past of the planet Earth, you would find different plants and animals than what you find today. Evolution is essentially a historical claim that the past is different from the present and that there has been cumulative change through time. And evolution is a concept that cuts across all sciences. Astronomy is an evolutionary science because galaxies evolve. You have cumulative change in cosmology. The planet Earth has cumulatively changed through time. Geology is an evolutionary science as well. Obviously, biology is an evolutionary science. Plants and animals have descended with modification from common ancestors. And anthropology is an evolutionary science. 
because human cultures have cumulatively changed in addition to everything else on the planet. I'm going to expand just a little bit about biological evolution because this is the major sticking point for most uh, anti-evolutionists. You know, if you were to walk down just about any street, certainly in the United States, but maybe even in Canada, hard to tell, uh, and you ask people, what is evolution? The most common answer you get is, that is all for monkeys. Um, but well, that's not actually what evolution is all about. Um, <laughs> number one, uh, it's not just men, all right? It's um, people. Um, that is not man. <laughs> <laughs> that is monkey. Um, but uh, human beings did not evolve from monkeys. We also did not evolve from apes. I'll get to that in a second. What evolution is about is the common ancestry of living things. In a sense, biological evolution refers to a huge genealogical uh, relationship of species through time. It's like the world's biggest kinship chart or the world's biggest um, genealogy. Only the, um, instead of having your uncles and your aunts and your grandfathers and your cousins, uh, the genealogy is all the species of the world and how they come back together again ultimately through time because all of these things are related. Darwin talked about descent with modification, which is this kind of 19th century term that um, everybody's heard, and it sounds kind of archaic, but it's a very easily understood topic because all of us have descended with modification from common ancestors. My sister and I are the children of my father. My father is the child of Grandpa. Grandpa is also the father of Uncle John. Uncle John is the parent of Cousin Liz. Come on, Cousin Liz, there she goes. Now, Sue and I look more like each other than we look like Cousin Liz. That's because Sue and I share our father as a common ancestor more recently than we share Grandpa as a common ancestor with Liz. One of the, one of the key principles of evolution is the more recently you share a common ancestor, the more similar you are. Works the same with other groups other than family trees as well. So bears and dogs look more like each other than they look like lions because bears and dogs shared a common dog-like ancestor with each other more recently than they shared a common, common carnivore ancestor with a cat line. Cebus monkeys and howler monkeys are more similar to each other than they are to apes because Cebus and howler monkeys shared a common monkey ancestor with each other more recently than they shared a common primate ancestor with the apes. But bears and monkeys look more like each other than they look like salamanders because bears and monkeys shared a common mammal reptile, mammal ancestor with each other, more recently than they shared a common vertebrate ancestor with salamanders. The more recently you shared a common ancestor, the more similar you are. It's a basic principle that we appreciate in our family trees and it also works for all the lifetimes. So instead of man evolved the monkey, what we have in, what we have is the common ancestry of humans and monkeys. This is really the relationship. Humans and apes shared a common ancestor more recently than the human-ape group shared a common ancestor with monkeys. And if you go back to any of these nodes, you would find common ancestors that are um, different from their living descendants, just like my father is not identical to my sister and I, or my grandfather is not identical to my cousin and I. Um, but 
similarities nonetheless, because ultimately we're talking about the passing on of genes and traits over generations. I've never quite understood why people would reject the idea of evolution in, you know, from a scientific sense, because everybody understands heredity. We're products of heredity, right? And we understand how my blue eyes were passed down from my father, and in the heavens I could say from my dark-eyed mother. Now we understand that stuff gets passed on generation to generation. That's heredity. That's genetics. Well, if you accept genetics, you kind of have to accept evolution, because that's really what evolution is all about. It's about the passing on of traits over extremely long periods of time. And groups of organisms adapting to environments using those genetic traits that they have inherited. So, anyway, to return to our history, evolution was returning to the curriculum by the mid-60s, and this caused religious conser conservatives considerable distress. Henry Morris developed creation science to counter the stress. Creation science was a very interesting movement. Still is a very interesting movement. It's going quite strong. It is not over yet. The claim of creation science is not only that special creation is true, because that's what it says in the Bible, but that it is possible to find scientific evidence to support the special creation view, that everything appears essentially, in essentially its present form a relatively short time ago. Now, this is a very difficult case to make from a scientific standpoint. Uh, if creation science reflects the biblical literalist theology, but as I say, they also want to claim scientific warrant for their views as well. So because Henry Morris and his followers of creation science require the earth to be young, because of course they win because it's young. If there are not billions of years of time, there's not enough time for evolution, which doesn't work backwards. And therefore, uh, if they can disprove the idea that the earth is billions of years old, they definitely have a leg up. So there's a lot of discussion in the creation science literature about evidence for a young Earth. Catastrophic geology is at the heart of creation science because of the necessity for the Earth to be young and to explain all of the geological features on the planet as the result of things that happen very suddenly. Um, they also want to try to bring the Bible into their explanations, into their scientific explanations, not just not just their you know, religious explanations, but account for biblical uh, activities through science. So the flood of Noah is, has a very large position in the creation science literature. And this is a very good example of catastrophic geology. There are, there are geological features on the planet like the Himalayan mountains and the uh, Grand Canyon, uh, really quite striking geological phenomena that they have to explain as occurring very, very quickly, because otherwise their model uh, fails, and the evolutionist model would therefore win. Noah's flood is responsible for a great deal of the formation of the shape of the modern planet, according to the creation science proponents. Grand Canyon is um, this really quite wonderful uh, geological feature in the state of Arizona. It is part of a much wider, much larger uh, geological phenomenon known as the Colorado Plateau. Colorado Plateau is like this huge dome that extends over like three or three or four different states. 
Um, the Grand Canyon is actually the lowest part of this whole big Colorado plateau. And you have uh, Zion Canyon and Bryce Canyon. You can sort of see, uh, it, it's called sometimes called the Grand Staircase because it's this uh, um, gradually increasing um, uh, um, altitude of, of, of geological formation. All of this and everything else on the planet, the um, ocean, ocean basins, uh, the Colorado Rockies, uh, the Himalayas, everything has to be the result of Noah's flood, which is the most recent geological uh, uh, catastrophe. So they explain the lower, lowest portion, the bedrock area of Grand Canyon, as being pre-flood. This was the original creation and the period of time from uh, Adam and Eve up until the flood of Noah, uh, a couple thousand years. The early flood is the um, upper part of Grand Canyon. But then as you get into the um, late flood, you get into the Zion Canyon area, the post-flood is Bryce Canyon and further up. Um, I don't know how, how familiar you are with the flood story of Genesis, but um, it was a pretty long period of time. Uh, the Norville P.R. Just a movie. Um, just came out. It's being panned widely, uh, both by religious people as well as the um, uh, uh, Chris, I have not seen it yet. I've been traveling. Uh, but anyway, we get a chance to see it at your leisure. But it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but that wasn't the extent of the flood. That was just the extent of the rain. All the farmers got on the, um, the uh, ark and Noah and his family, and then the rain came. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. You had the water from above the firmament, the water from below the firmament, you had a whole lot of water. And then the ark floated around for almost a year. You had this huge amount of water that scoured all of the um, rocks and twigs and uh, trees and all the features of the earth, mixed it up in this huge slurry, and then all of these settled out over the period of the year. And it's the settling out, you see the layers there, it's the settling out of these waters that produced the layers of Grand Canyon. So say the creation science people. This is not persuasive to geologists, by the way. <laughs> um, so that, that explains how Grand Canyon, how the layers of the rock were laid down. Now, how is Grand Canyon cut? The contention of the, of the uh, catastrophic geologists around Andrew Morris and his followers are that there was a huge impoundment of water up above what is current Grand Canyon area. And it's uh, sort of like Glacial Lake Missoula, if you know anything about the Channel Scatlands in the northern part of the United States. This huge impoundment of water broke through and this enormous amount of water, like 10 or 12 Lake Michigan, um, scoured out Grand Canyon catastrophically over a period of a week or two. Ken Ham, who is the head of Answers in Genesis, <laughs> has this wonderful phrase that every time you hear it, it just makes me smile. He says, you evolutionists, Look at the carving of Grand Canyon as a little bit of water over a long period of time. We just look at it as a whole lot of water over a short period of time. <laughs> They're just not equivalent. <laughs> <laughs> um, among other things that makes one curious is to, you know, you've got this soggy mass, if you uh, recall. Um, you have this, this soggy mass of, um, well, just in Grand Canyon alone. Grand Canyon as well, you've got from 4,000 to 6,000 feet of sediment. This is a lot, this is a 
big stack of rocks, okay, rocks and mud, clay and press, and, you know, this, and it's all wet, right, because it's just been laid down, this is the end of the flood, it's all foggy. Somehow or another, a huge amount of water washes through there, and very, very tidily cuts uh, a large ditch in the middle of this, but rather than just slumping forward, which is what you kind of expect a lot of soggy settlements to do, they all stand up there very, very crisply and don't fall in. You know, I mean, as science, this stuff really, really, really does work. Uh, if you want to know more about Grand Canyon and uh, why it is not catastrophically deposited or catastrophically cut, um, this is a little commercial for the National Center for Science Education, the Grand Canyon Rat Strip. <laughs> Every summer we have an absolutely wonderful rat strip down in Grand Canyon where we talk about the creationist view of Grand Canyon and we have a geologist who gives you the straight real science. And we it's, it's an eight-day camping trip and it's just fabulous. Of course, even if you don't care about creationism, um, the, uh, the canyon is just such a spectacular place. It's just really wonderful. We have had many Canadians come along on this trip. Um, here we are at a really interesting slab of Coconina sandstone that uh, used to live way, way, way up um, just right underneath the rim. Uh, this is one of the latter deposits. Um, and this piece of rock has fallen down to the river's edge, so it's very easy to kind of see the river in the background there. We can just kind of walk up in the bank and come and see it. And it's really kind of neat. I'm not telling you. It's really kind of neat because it has um, a whole bunch of little, little tiny tetrapod footprints tethering on all over the place, and we're looking at these footprints. Now, that happens in many sandstone um, structures. You, you know, you find uh, footprints of various animals that under certain circumstances when there's a heavy dew on sand uh, and a creature uh, walks across the sand, if there is a breeze that covers that, uh, those prints up again, you can, you can solidify them. And, you know, prints do form in sandstone layers like this quite a bit. They form in sandstone layers that are laid down under dry conditions. <laughs> um, there are many characteristics of the Coconino sandstone that geologists say um, would require you to uh, conclude that it was that these are wind-lane dunes. They're alien. They're laid down by air. Some sandstone formations are laid down by water. Sands like that. Flies the air and it also stays in water. Consider how difficult it is to have a wind-lane layer laid down over a water lane layer, that's easy enough, but then to have a water layer on top of that, that isn't going to work very well. Um, so anyway, there, there's a lot of little anomalies like this that disprove the creationist model and we talk about them when we have a great time. Um, there are a lot of resources on uh, the science of creation science and if you are interested in them, I would suggest you go to talkorigins.org, which is a very useful site that has a lot of analyses of the creationist position. Now, if you read the creationist, creation science literature, one of the things that you encounter a lot is what they call the two-model approach. And I'm going through this because we will come back to it. The two-model approach is a dichotomous um, viewpoint that they have, that there are only two possibilities. There's either evolution or there's special creation. If you read the creation science literature, it is all about why evolution is wrong. 
With the two-level approach, the conclusion is if evolution is wrong, then creation, then special creation wins by default. And actually, that's not illogical. That's sort of, if not A plus B equals one, if not A, then B. Um, that you know, the logic itself isn't that bad. The problem is the premises. And the premises are faulty because if you were able to disprove evolution, and it hasn't happened yet, you wouldn't necessarily demonstrate the truth of special creationism because there's other things over here on the creationism side, such as mainstream Christian theology, which is something called theistic evolution. That's the view that God created through the process of evolution. It's what, if you went to a Catholic school, that's what you learned. Uh, if you belong to any of the mainstream Protestant denominations, this is completely compatible with your theology. So disproving evolution doesn't prove theistic evolution. It doesn't prove special creationism. But we don't have to stop there. Why just stop with Christianity? It also doesn't disprove any of the other world religions, such as Hinduism, any of the tribal religions, uh, any of the um, religions that are no longer around anymore, like the ancient Greeks and the Roman. Um, it's, uh, it, it's just really faulty logic to assume that if you disprove evolution, then creationism wins. But having this particular point of view among the, the creation science people hold, this allows you to just attack evolution without having to come up with any positive scientific evidence for your science. Which you can kind of understand why they do it, because there really isn't any positive evidence for this. <laughs> when I wrote my book um, on creation and evolution a few years ago, uh, the publisher wanted me to structure the book that I would have um, uh, selections from the creationist literature uh, and then rebuttals from the evolution literature, so it would be point counterpoint stuff. That was fine. And I didn't want to, you know, it was really, really hard to find positive arguments to creationists made. Because everything was about why evolution is wrong. Our radiometric dating is wrong, therefore the Earth is yet, therefore we win. Um, and so, you know, this, but, but keep in mind the two-model approach because I will come back to it. Now in the 1970s and 80s, there were efforts to get creational science taught in both school districts and also to try to get state laws passed requiring that if evolution was taught, creation science had to be taught as well. These were equal time laws. The states of Arkansas and Louisiana passed these laws, and the Louisiana case actually made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. And the court struck down equal time laws. Basically, the Edwards versus Aguilar decision in 1987 took the point of view that public schools have to be religiously neutral. The establishment free exercise clauses taken together mean that public institutions have to be neutral. They cannot promote nor denigrate religion. And these laws would promote a sectarian religion uh, and therefore favoring one religion for us. But there were a couple of loopholes in the um, Supreme Court decision, which Justice Brennan wrote, and there was a dissent from Justice Scalia that also provided a potential loophole. Justice Brennan had written that it was legal to teach scientific alternatives to evolution. And of course it would be. You can teach scientific alternatives to anything. What you can't do is teach religious alternatives to stuff. But this was a classic hypothetical because there are no 
scientific alternatives to the idea that living things have common ancestors and that the universe is atomistic. There are no scientific alternatives to evolution. Justice Scalia wrote that it would be perfectly legal for the citizens of Louisiana or anybody, anyplace else to teach the evidence against evolution. He said, just as John Scopes was, um, was uh, uh, able to teach the evidence for it, free speech. These two loopholes uh, inspired creationists to continue fighting. The idea of scientific alternatives to evolution was already in the air, so to speak, by the uh, Edwards decision in the late 1980s. There were uh, a group of conservative Christians who were disillusioned with creation science. They recognized that with its focus upon biblical liberalism, it was not appealing to mainstream Christians. I was only appealing to conservative Christians, and that limited its usefulness uh, as a way of, of uh, combating uh, evolution. And they also uh, were quite aware that it had definite legal vulnerabilities because it was so overtly religious. And this group of conservative Christians fought to come up with a more viable, legally viable, and more popular form of anti-evolutionism that you know, would be palatable to a wider range of Christians. Um, the book on top, The Mystery of Life Origin, became the best known of these books, and it's considered by many intelligent design proponents to be the founding book of their movement. In Saxton et al., The Mystery of Life's Origin, they presented the idea that there are some biological phenomena, like the origin of life, that not only are not yet explained, but that by their very nature cannot be explained through science. You cannot explain certain phenomena through natural processes because of their great complexity, uh, because they simply are beyond anything that natural processes can explain. As Dean Kenyon said in the foreword to the book, it is fundamentally implausible that unassisted matter and energy organize themselves into living systems. Now, this continues to be a theme in modern intelligent design as well, that there are some biological phenomena that by nature are impossible to explain through natural causes. When you think about this, this is a really toxic kind of idea from the standpoint of science. You're saying, we are going to take completely off the table this whole set of problems and not even try to find scientific solutions to them. Science doesn't like to have things taken off. <coughs> um, what we are very used to saying in science is, I don't know yet. <laughs> and that yet is very useful. We might not know the, all the steps involved in the origin of life now, but who's to know two weeks from now or two years from now or 20 years from now? So you don't say, this problem is too hard to solve, it is unsolvable. There's a big difference between unsolved and unsolvable. We like to think that we are able to solve things, and as long as we believe that, we'll be able to find the book. That's not the position of the authors of this book, nor of the intelligent design proponents. Intelligent design also hearkens to a much older tradition, that of William Paley in the early 1800s. In Paley's book, Natural Theology, he used an analogy of taking a walk on a heath. If you were walking in the heath and you see a stone, you would not think twice about it. It was a natural item, it might have been there for hundreds of thousands of years for all you know you've never think about. But if you found a pocket watch, 
you would know because of the complexity of that pocket watch. You would know because of all the springs and wires and all the pieces that fit together so very cleverly to perform this function of uh, keeping track of time. You would know by the complexity of that artifact, of that human art, of that uh, complicated uh, watch there. You would know there had to be a watchmaker. And that's perfectly logical. Therefore, if you see something complex in nature, such as the human eye, it's really the vertebrate eyes that have If you see something really complex in nature, like the eye, you know from all of the equivalent of springs and wires and, and levels and layers, you know because of all of the vessels and the lenses and all of the complicated things that fit together, um, um, have the effect of light, of allowing light images into the brain, you know there had to be a, an eye maker, because unlike a stone, this is too complicated to have just occurred by chance, to have just have occurred by nature. So therefore, there had to be an eye maker. Therefore, there had to be a God. The, the argument from design is an apologetic. It's a proof of the existence of God. Very, very popular during the 1800s. And actually, uh, Natural Theology is quite a wonderful book. Uh, uh, Reverend um, Paley was quite a, a natural historian, and he knew a lot about nature, and he wrote a very engaging book. What was interesting about Charles Darwin is that he grew up on Paley. Everybody grew up on Paley. He read Paley when he was a college student at Cambridge. He thought Paley was great. Only later in life, when Darwin came up with the idea of natural selection, did he really challenge Paley and challenge him in a big way. In The Origin of Species, Darwin specifically used the human eye as his example of something that could be explained through natural processes because he knew that everybody reading that book, all of the educated people in England had read Paley and knew that the eye was the classic example of something that was too complicated to be explained by natural processes. So he, he took the idea, and in fact, there's this wonderful quotation from uh, The Origin where he says, if you look, it's a paraphrase, if you look at the complexity of the eye, it really seems impossible to imagine that this could be produced by, uh, by my mechanism. Creationists often put a full stop there, and they don't bother reading the next several paragraphs, in which Darwin goes on to say, but, but wait, there's more. Uh, the 19th century equivalent, <laughs> which takes paragraphs. Um, <laughs> Darwin then goes on to explain how, well, you know, here's how an eye could have evolved through natural. Natural selection is a natural way of coming up with complex things. And that is the big difference between special creation and evolution, of course. Another one is the But the intelligent design performances of today really are hearkening back to this idea of the that there are some things that are just so complicated that natural processes cannot explain them. Of course, that assumes that there is an association between natural processes things that are extant in nature, that are not human, or uh, the result of intelligent causes, as it were, that, that anything that is a natural cause is therefore random and unpredictable, which is completely wrong. Nature is full of law-like processes. That's why we can do science. We can discover these law-like processes. And natural selection is a law. Natural selection is a law-like process that, given certain uh, components, will result in a particular so intelligent design basically has two major ideas. Michael Behe's concept of irreducible complexity and William Demsky's concept of the design inference or specified complexity. 
We don't have time to go into the depth, although they're kind of interesting. But in general, Behe's idea has to do with the great complexity in biological organisms supposedly being incompatible with natural selection. And Dembski's design inference has to do with highly improbable, highly improbable events supposedly being incompatible with natural selection. So it's basically the same kind of uh, William Paley idea that natural processes cannot develop complexity. Schematically, intelligent design proponents claim that irreducible complexity or specified complexity could conceivably be produced by chance or by natural selection or intelligent design. Now, clearly, really complex things like eyes and blood clotting cascades and so forth cannot be produced by chance. Everybody on both sides of this issue agrees that that's not the explanation. Natural selection is not a chance process. Another unfortunate misunderstanding by uh, many uh, creations. Intelligent design proponents say that natural selection can't explain it either, and therefore the only possibility <laughs> is intelligent design. Now, most scientists actually believe that natural selection can indeed explain complex phenomena, and intelligent design really is not an explanation at all. But even if natural selection couldn't explain complex structures, you know, you have this basic problem here. What if these aren't the only possible causes of complex structures? What if there is an unknown cause that hasn't been discovered yet? Yeah. Raise your hand if you think scientists have discovered everything there is to know about the planet. No. <laughs> There's no scientist who would ever raise their hand at that point. So, does this look familiar to you? It sure looks familiar to me. This looks to me like the old two model approach. Only instead of uh, evolution uh, versus special creationism, disprove evolution and you prove intelligent design. It's the same kind of reasoning and it has the same flaws. From my way of thinking and having studied, studied these movements, I believe that intelligent design is really a subset of creation science. There are many claims that creation science proponents make, such as the Noah's um, the catastrophic geology, the Noah's flood story, and so forth and so on, age of the earth things, that um, intelligent design doesn't, intelligent design just ignores all that, which by the way is one reason why many of the creation science organizations have separated themselves from the design movement, they believe it is insufficiently biblical, so they don't want to have anything to do with it. But everything that intelligent design does claim, the complexity argument, the requirement of special creation, which is really what the intelligent design designer is, capital ID, the intelligent design, that is part and parcel of creation science, pre-existed in creation science, and is not new to intelligent design. Now, I just want to again underscore the fact that mainstream Christian theologians are firmly on the side of evolution and are critical of intelligent design uh, and are critical, of course, of creation science as well. Um, there is a huge literature of Christian theology regarding uh, evolution and it's uh, uh, quite extensive. And uh, this is true also of many evangelical Christians. Uh, the BioLogos Forum is an online forum of evangelical Christians who discuss science and um, uh, religion issues. And um, not all of their discussion is about evolution, but when they do, they accept the science. The American Scientific Affiliation is a very old 
Science and Religion Organization dating back to the 1940s, very well respected. To be a member, you have to have a graduate degree in science. ASA3.org, check it out. These are evangelical Christians, not all of whom accept evolution, but many of whom do. And there are many articles on the ASA website in which um, uh, scientific uh, evidence for age of the earth, for example, is explained and uh, presented to their fellow um, um, members of the faith. So what happens to what happens to intelligent design? Well, as was mentioned in the introduction by Jeff, in 2004, the city of Dover, Pennsylvania, uh, voted in the teaching of intelligent design. A group of parents sued, uh, filed suit to the school district, not wanting their children to be taught somebody else's religion. There was a trial, and after listening to testimony from both sides, the judge decided that intelligent design was not science, but a sectarian religious view that was constitutionally precluded from being advocated in the public schools. Since the Kitzmiller versus Dover decision, there have been very few attempts to institute the de jure teaching of intelligent design in school, although it periodically crops up in state legislatures, but they don't seem to pass. So where are we now? Uh, let's go back to that um, uh, slide that I showed you earlier about the loopholes from the Edwards decision. Well, the scientific alternatives to evolution, in other words, intelligent design theory, was one loophole that seems to be largely closed. But then there's Scalia's dissent, in which he suggested the evidence against evolution approach would be a good way to um, blunt the teaching of evolution. Now, remember the first pillar of creationism, that evolution is a theory of crisis, that um, uh, there's something wrong with the science. Uh, the evidence against evolution approach suggested by Scalia is an example of this. And of course, this is also part and parcel of creation science and intelligent design, but what we're talking about now is using the first pillar as a political strategy. And as it has been applied, the evidence against evolution strategy applies or combines both the straight-up anti-evolutionism of the first pillar with the fairness pillar, which is a very clever approach. What is argued is that teachers should teach evolution, but then they should also teach the evidence against evolution. They would teach the strengths and weaknesses of evolution. There's a number of other um, uh, euphemisms that they use to, um, to uh, outline what should be taught. But basically, from the standpoint of modern science, you teach the science and then you teach the science is wrong. Now, it's hard to argue with being a good pedagogical approach, but that is the, that's the core of the evidence against evolution approach. The major manifestation of this particular strategy are something, uh, a suite of what have been called academic freedom acts. And there have been something like um, over 60 of these bills proposed in a variety of states since, two, since the first one showed up in 2004. Uh, in these laws, teachers are directed to compromise the teaching of evolution by bringing in the evidence against evolution the strengths and weaknesses of evolution. In other words, information that is really found only in the creationist literature. Um, the framing of these uh, academic freedom acts is really very clever. It's, they're often written in terms of uh, um, freedom of speech, academic freedom. Um, let the teacher bring in the new good science. 
Well, it's really not new and it's not very good. Uh, there are reasons why we have curriculum. Um, or it's, it's framed in terms of the student, let me learn. You know, it's, um, and I love, why can't I be allowed to decide for myself what the truth is? <laughs> you know, well, sweetie, yes, you know, we do want you to think about many, many issues, but you need to have correct information presented to you from the get-go, and then you can work it your way on that. You are, you are 10 years old. <laughs> um, and yes, yes, we do want you to decide what the truth is on a number of things, but the reason why water flows downhill, we have a really good explanation of that. We can talk about Newtonian mechanics. The earth does not suck. That's not why water flows downhill. You don't have to decide for yourself what the truth is. We know what works for a lot of um, Just as a quick summary of academic freedom, uh, they tend to avoid the mention of religion in any form whatsoever. They're very, they, these are very clean bills, uh, which of course means they're trying to uh, avoid the establishment clause. They stress free speech and academic freedom. Again, that third pillar, very, very popular. Interestingly enough, many of these academic freedom acts are protected bills. And it states in the bill that any teacher who brings in this new, this new critical thinking material uh, cannot, be, cannot be disciplined by the district. And around our office, we refer to this as the get out of jail free card um, for you monopoly players. Um, <laughs> you can't actually do this. Uh, the Constitution of the United States has the Establishment Clause. You cannot say, teachers, you can ignore the Establishment Clause, we can't go after you. That's not how it works. That's not how law works. So that's, that's a very problematic component of these laws. The other thing that's very clever about these bills is that rather than being directives like the Equal Time for Creation Science Policies were or the Intelligent Design uh, Policy in Dover, they're not directives. They don't say, teachers, you have to do A, B, and C. They say teachers can do agency. And that is a very clever strategy from a legal standpoint. Because as lawyers have told me, I'm not a lawyer. Do not rely upon legal advice from a physical anthropologist. I want to be sure people understand that. Um, but what lawyers will tell you is that to challenge a law or a statute on its face um, is, well, it's usually preferable. It's a lot less work, even though it's a lot of work. But you have you you need to have the the law has to be written in a way that you can make this kind of a facial challenge. When you have a permissive bill, many judges will say, "Well, you know, the teachers don't have to do this. Um, let, let's just see how this works out. So go find a teacher who's bringing in creationist material, and then we can and then we can challenge the bill. You have to make an as applied challenge. So these these bills are very cleverly written. They're much more sophisticated." than the old Equal Time for Creation Science Bill of the 1980s. So, what these bills really do is they bring creationism back into the curriculum without calling it that. Uh, they change the name, but not the content. It's really creationism for the bank board. If I were to summarize the um, uh, uh, little history that I've just been giving you, creation science Begat intelligent design. Uh, <laughs> intelligent design in the post Edwards versus Aguilar era, in which we find ourselves now, has uh, evolved into, shall we say, a, a two pronged approach. One being to present the evidence against evolution, 
such as these academic freedom acts, the other being to propose the teaching of alternative theories of evolution, such as intelligent design. And there may be some new evolutionary development along these lines as well. Um, what killed intelligent design was that there was an intelligent agent, and that agent was identifiable as God, therefore the establishment was called it. If they can come up with an agent list uh, and alternative, then you know, that may be where they're headed. But then that takes God out, so that's the problem. If you ask a proponent of, um, you know, if you're a teacher and you want to present an alternative theory to evolution in your classroom, um, you go to the proponents of these views and the students say, where will I find this material? Because I went to the biology department at, uh, at the university here, and they didn't know what I was talking about. They don't know any alternative theories to evolution. Where will I find this material? Well, you will find you will be directed right back to creation science and intelligence science. If you go to those who promote the idea that we should teach evolution and the evidence against evolution to balance it out, I went to the biology department. The biology department didn't know of any evidence against evolution. Where will I find that information? Remarkably enough, <laughs> you will find that back in the creation science and intelligence design literature. This is creationism by the back door. This is the evolution of creation. Now, you might recall the 1996 ministerial guidelines for the teaching of biology, where the ministry made it clear that creationism was not to be taught, evolution was. The section course requirements respecting beliefs. Um, there was a section continued over two pages. It was explicit about not teaching creationism. Under no circumstance may a teacher, as part of a science course, provide instruction to a religious dogma or religious belief system. It was really quite strong. If I can pull out a section from that, I apologize for a long quote. While respecting the personal beliefs of students, teachers are only to provide instruction in classroom activities in accordance with the scientific purpose and scope of the learning outcomes set out in this guide. These learning outcomes do not include any instruction based on an interpretation of religious scriptures or writings, nor on beliefs or viewpoints commonly characterized as creationism, theory of divine creation, intelligent design theory, or other theories based on religious beliefs. My the 1996 Guide to Teachers is very explicit, thou shalt not teach creationism, intelligent design, other religious or based views. <laughs> That's the good news. The less than good news is that the 2006 revision of these curriculum guidelines, that section has been considerably abbreviated. It's much shorter and much less explicit. While respecting the personal beliefs of students, teachers should be careful to distinguish between knowledge based on the application of scientific methods and religious teachings and associated beliefs such as creationism, theory of design creation, or intelligence. Distinguishing creationism from science isn't quite the same thing as saying, don't teach it. The 2006 version of the curriculum guide sent to teachers is much weaker than that 1996 version. I wonder if this is a loophole that might need to be closed. What we have found at the National Center for Science Education is that defending good science in the schools requires attention. 
It's very easy for problems to be corrected, but then to reemerge at a later time. This op-ed from 1996 might become accurate again. The thorny debate over teaching creationism in school resurfaces in British Columbia, but I hope not. That, of course, depends on you. More information on the creation and evolution controversy and other <coughs> topics can be found at ncse.com. If you're interested in a free electronic newsletter that comes out every Friday, you can sign up for it at this button here on the lower right-hand side of the page. If you go to um, our, please do check out our blog. We've got some wonderful stuff on the blog these days, new, newly arranged. The news page, link page, takes you to this page where there's lots of depressing information. Uh, those <laughs> things for students who are looking for term paper topics can find lots of interesting information by either state, international, or year and you can find lots of information. Um, we are a membership organization. We obviously appreciate people joining. Uh, we have added climate change to evolution to the portfolio, if you will, because we have discovered that teachers are facing the same kind of pushback for teaching climate change as they have been receiving for teaching evolution. And we now have uh, more resources about climate change on our website as well. The National Center for Science Education is a wonderful resource that I strongly recommend to you. My um, former colleagues there, Glenn Branch, the Deputy Director, Robert Lund, the Education <coughs> Director, Peter Hess is the Religious Community Outreach Director, uh, Josh Rosenow and Steve Newton are our major flare-up wranglers, although everybody deals with the uh, problems of teaching. Uh, evolution and climate change at the local level. Education Director is Eric Mickle, who also contributes a great deal to our flare-ups wrangling. And our two new climate change specialists, Mark McCaffrey and Linda Rebecco. The new Executive Director is Ann Reed, who is doing a bang-up job. Uh, I consider it a privilege to work for this organization for many years, and I encourage you to support it as well. Mm -hmm. And thank you for inviting me to share your email. <laughs> Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.